can have a seat. But nevertheless, it's a great, great song. So let's sing it together. start the morning by saying that I am very, very proud of you all, because last week, Bertrill made a passing comment. She talked about a homeless shelter that she's aware of over in Murfreesboro, and she asked if maybe we could pick up some gloves. And I thought maybe there'd be five, six pairs of gloves come in this morning, you should see the pile of stuff we have by the front door. All those plastic bags piled up by the door are full of gloves and blankets. My own daughter left here last Sunday, went straight to Bargain Hunt. They had a display of children's gloves. She bought out the display, stuffed them in a bag, and I thought, well, she'll be the only one who does that. Oh, no! There were people showing up this morning with blankets and gloves and scarves and all stuff that by this afternoon is going to be used by folk who simply can't afford such things. And so I am very, very grateful to you all for responding so quickly to somebody just saying, here's an opportunity to be good to people. And you all rose to the occasion. And that makes me really happy. That means that... The theology that we learn, the theology that we believe, hasn't just affected your heart, hasn't just affected your head. I was pointing to my head while I said heart, because I know the end of the story. <laughs> no, I'm glad that it hasn't just affected your head. I'm glad that it traveled all the way down to your heart, because Christianity is a whole lot more than just knowing stuff. And I'm glad to see the reaction. I am also very, very grateful for all the folks who brought food this morning and the sound that you're going to continue hearing as the doors are opening over here is more food arriving. 
and Bertrill and her family setting up food in the back. At some point this morning, the smell of food is going to come wafting into the building, and I know that hunger is really tough competition. So I'm going to try to keep it reasonably brief this morning. You didn't believe a word of that, did you? I actually got this from Kellen. (laughs) So I hope you can stick around and eat with us this morning. We typically have enough food to feed a small army. And so stick around and eat with us afterwards. Turn to 1 Peter. We are continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 1. Last week, we got a sentence. I know. Woo-hoo. So we're hoping to get another sentence this morning and perhaps a little more. Now, there is a big difference, a chasm of difference between the world's view of what I call pop psychology and the biblical worldview. And we're going to bump right into that immediately in the next thing that Peter writes. Because Peter is going to talk about inexpressible joy. That's the phraseology that the translators went with because Peter is talking about just overwhelming, abounding joy. And yet he is writing that to people who are under persecution, who are out of their homeland, who are living as the scattered, the diaspora, and they are undergoing a great trial of their faith. And yet in the midst of all that, Peter talks about inexpressible joy. Paul talks about, and we've seen it before, he talks about a peace that passes understanding. And this is the same kind of idea, a joy that completely passes worldly psychology or worldly thinking, because the world thinks that your emotions and your moods and your reactions should be based on your circumstances. But Peter says just the opposite. That despite your circumstances, because of who it is you know and what it is you know and and what you know about your own redemption, all the stuff that we talked about last week, knowing that you're chosen by God, that you've been elected, that you're foreknown by God, that you've been designated to an inheritance that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you and that you are protected by the power of God. Knowing that, you can then be joyful regardless of your circumstances. Now, people sometimes confuse the concept of joy with the concept of happiness. That's not what we're talking about. Happiness has at its root the same root word as happenstance, happening, Happiness, they all go together because happiness is based on happenstance, based on what is going around you, what is going on around you. If somebody shows up at your door in the middle of a drab day and they've brought a cake, let's say a chocolate cake, (laughs) well, then you're instantly going to get happier than you were before. 
What? What? You brought me a cat? What for? Why did you bring me a cat? Just because I thought about you and I love you and here's a cake. Well, you're going to get immediately happy because of the happenstance that is happening. And so your happiness becomes dependent on your circumstances. That's not what Paul and Peter even talk about. Peter is talking about joy that occurs regardless of the circumstances. And even though the circumstances of the people he is writing to are bad circumstances, nevertheless, he can say, you have joy. And then he talks about the fact that we love Christ who we've never seen. Writing to his original audience, he says, though you've never seen him, you love him. Though you've never seen him, you believe in him. You trust in him. Well, that is one of the great miraculous elements of Christianity. I've seen a lot of people. I've gotten to know a lot of people. And I have different levels of affection for the various different people I've met. I've never met Jesus face to face. And yet I can say to you without hesitation that I love him. Someone whom I've never met, I am trusting my entire eternity to him. Isn't that remarkable? Why is that? Because you all feel the same thing. You all have that same sense that you love and trust somebody you've never actually met. And yet, Peter, writing to the diaspora, to the scattered talking about the fact that God has chosen them, God has given them this inheritance that isn't going to fade away, and God is protecting them. Another thing that God has done is put his spirit inside them, and as a result of having the very spirit of God inside you, you end up having emotional responses and trust toward someone you've never met. And I find that remarkable. I trust him implicitly. I trust that when I leave this planet and launch out into eternity, that I'm going to be okay with God because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. That's unbelievable to the world. The world would say, how? How does that make you okay? How does that make you well? Look at your circumstances. Look at what's happening to you. Look at what you're going through. Look at the difficulties of life. Can't you see that it's an evil world? And can't you see that we may all blow up at any moment? And there might be nuclear war in the hall. Everybody run in circles and panic. I mean, can't you see what a terrible world we live in? I agree. And yet, we Christians don't run in circles and panic. We know that God has got eternity in his hands. We know that God has already foreordained and planned the things that are happening in this world. The Bible predicts and tells us what is coming in human history. And as a result of that, we already know the end And the end is God wins. And the end is Christ reigns. And the end is we're safe. And the end is we're redeemed. And we live in glory forever with the holy and glorious one. 
So we have joy inexpressible even in the midst of the trials and the terrors and the problems of this life. I feel bad for the world. I feel sorry for unbelievers. I feel sorry for non-Christians. Rather than feel dislike toward them, I actually feel pity toward them. Because I don't know how they get through this life. Well, I do because I've dealt with them long enough. They get through this life through drugs and alcohol and all kinds of perversions and all kinds of liberal ideals. That's how they get through this life, by trying to make this life conform more to their fleshly desires and wants. That's how they get through this world. But they never reach the point of having joy inexpressible. They never reach that point because they've got nothing that they can actually hold on to. Nothing that they can stand on that has rigor behind it. Nothing that they can say, okay, even as this world goes increasingly crazy, I have something with foundation that I can stand on that I can trust. And that's why they run in circles and panic. Because they don't know what else to do. As opposed to run in circles and panic, the Bible says, stand. And having done all, therefore, stand. Stand in place. God says things like, be quiet. I'm God. I'm in charge. You stand. Watch. I've got this covered. So we have a peace that the world simply doesn't get. And we have a joy that we even can't explain. I have sometimes been in the midst of terrible circumstances. And anybody who's been alive on the planet long enough has lived through terrible circumstances. If you're fortunate enough that at this point in your life you have not lived through any terrible circumstances, live a little longer. Because terrible circumstances are part of life. And yet, in the midst of my terrible circumstances, I have found peace. I have found joy. I have found contentment because I don't rest in my circumstances and I don't rest in my own ability to deal with my circumstances. I rest in the fact that God knows what he's doing and he's doing those things that bring him the greatest glory and that are ultimately for our greatest good. I trust that. I rest on that. And I'm ready to launch myself out into eternity based on that. Amen? Amen. Got a group amen that time. When we finished the prayer in the back, somebody, what was the phrase? All right. Yeah, that was the phrase when we got done it with the prayer in the back. All right. I went, rather than amen, now we're doing all right. All right. Can I get an all right? Do you feel all right? I can start a tent revival on that. Is he all right? All right. <laughs> all right. First Peter chapter one. We're starting at verse one. The new material, the new sentence starts in verse six, but it begins with the words in this you greatly rejoice. Well, we have to go back and see what the thing is that we greatly rejoice in. So we're going to start back at verse one of chapter one of first Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Now we know what the in this is. The in this is all the stuff that the first sentence is made up of. The fact that we are foreknown by God, that we are elected, we are chosen by God the Father, that he has sanctified us through his spirit so that we have the ability to obey Jesus Christ, that we've been sprinkled with his blood, which brings us into the new covenant, and so grace and peace is ours to fullest measure. And according to God's great grace, he caused us to be born again to this living hope that we live in through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for us because we are protected by the very dunamis, the very power of God through the faith that God has given us by his spirit for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. If you can't rejoice in that, you're dead. If you can't see all that and think, wow, that's chocolate cake for me. Okay, now I've got joy. I may not always have happiness, but I've got joy now. Because I know all of this is true of me. And because I didn't do it, I can't blow it. I can't get rid of it. You can't get yourself out of the grace of God because the grace of God is based in the permanence of who God is. God is faithful to himself and God has placed his grace on you, evidenced by the fact that he has given you his Holy Spirit. And if you have his Holy Spirit, that's not an accident. He gave you his spirit on purpose. And because God doesn't make mistakes... And God never had to say, what? You mean to tell me that Micah ended up with my spirit? Gabriel, get over here. What are we thinking? We just accidentally saved Micah. That simply never happened. God doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. Whatever God does, it is permanent. Whatever God does, he foreknew it before he did it. 
And once God lays his love on you and puts his spirit in you, you are now permanently protected according to the power of God. And you are never going to get yourself out of relationship, out of covenant, because you were brought into the covenant with the higher, better, newer blood of Christ. And so how do you possibly get yourself out of the good graces of God if you didn't put yourself in it? I mean, this is important to understand. Otherwise, you're never going to experience what Peter's about to call the inexpressible joy. Once you know that God did it, and God did it permanently, and God did it completely, and that Christ paid the price utterly and completely, and that grace is now abounding toward you, and that God is going to look on you as he looks on his own son. He's not going to bring up your sins or rebellions. He's going to accept you the way that he has accepted the sacrifice of his son. If all that is true of you, it's just joy, 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 joy up here. It's joy to the world. We sang that this morning. It's joy. So he can say, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. Even though, here come the circumstances. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, the Jewish believers that he's writing to, to accept Jesus in that first generation of Jews was tantamount to taking yourself out of Jewish society. You were out of the temple. The temple is where so much of the buying, selling, trading went on. Your business would be destroyed. You'd be essentially anathematized by the Jews that were keeping the Old Testament and following after Moses and those that did not accept Christ. And since they were the majority, they could make your life really miserable. And as a consequence, that's one of the reasons that the diaspora exists outside of Jerusalem and has existed ever since the Babylonian captivity that we've been reading about on Wednesday nights. And so from the Jews, you're getting a great deal of oppression and and you're being persecuted by the Jews. But then to make things worse, over the course of the first 300 years of the church's history, there are various waves of persecution coming out of Rome because Rome believes that their Caesar is God. And since Caesar has the right to persecute and kill whoever he pleases... If there's a group of people who are trying to undermine your authority and say that you're not deity and you like the idea of being deity, well, then you're going to persecute those people. So they're being persecuted from two different fronts and they're going through what Peter describes as distressed by various trials. Now, he's about to say that these trials are actually designed by God for the purpose of trying your faith in order to burn off the dross so that the pure gold of your faith comes forward, so that there's purpose even in the trials. One of the greatest theological concepts, I say greatest in in terms of it had great help to me, it was a great benefit to me. When I understood that suffering 
was under the hand of God and that in God's sovereignty, he designed suffering for the purpose of bringing people to a greater need and understanding and faith in him. Once I understood that trials had purpose, suddenly I could get through the trials. It was difficult to get through the trials when it was just me doing it. It was difficult to get through the hard times when I had to dig down into my own shoe leather and try to find the strength to get through yet another trial, yet another difficulty, yet more pain. But once I understood that it had purpose to it, that God had designed it, and that God allowed it, and that God was ultimately the sovereign source behind these things that were working good in my life, well, then I was better able to accept the things that God had placed before me. So here we're talking about God who has absolute supreme power, absolute authority, who when his son was on the planet could talk to dead people and they would live again, could talk to people who were blind and they could see again, who, who just had this miraculous ability to make the troubles of life ease up. And for a long time, when I, growing up as a Lutheran kid, started understanding who God was and my relationship to God, I used to constantly ask questions like, well, if you can do that, why don't you? (laughs) Why don't you make it easier? It's hard down here. Why don't you make it easier for us? But then once I began to understand the Bible... I began to understand that the trials and the difficulties of life are also on purpose. And because they serve God's purpose in creating faith and confidence in in us, then I was better able to accept the struggles and the trials that I go through. So that's what Peter's about to say. That's what Peter's getting at now. God who is sovereign, God who chose you, God who has laid up an inheritance for you that doesn't fade away, that is imperishable, that will not rust or corrupt like anything on the planet. It's always there for you. God who has all the power and with his almighty power is protecting you even as you go through these things. That God and that power and that promise ought to cause you to have confidence in the God who is taking you through these various trials. Did that sentence make any sense? If it did, you filled in the blanks. But you know what I was getting at. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. For what reason? Here's the sovereign purpose, verse 7, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though the faith is tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's God's primary enterprise? God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he has determined that his son is going to have a name that is above every name. And every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, this is God's ultimate game plan. The way that he is accomplishing that is making sure that there are a people 
who are going to praise and glorify and honor Jesus at the revelation of Jesus. And what's the method that God is using to accomplish that? By taking those very people, giving them the promise, giving them the assurance that they have an inheritance that's not going to fade away, that they are protected by God, but then he also takes them through various trials for the purpose of proving their faith. Here, I'll, I'll make it easy. When did you learn more important stuff? When you were comfortable or when you were going through a trial? Going through the trial. We all agree. Isn't that amazing? Because when you're comfortable, you don't care. When you're happy, when it's all kumbaya and you're just sipping on a drink and, oh, it's sunny out. and I'm just, It's a happy day. You're not learning a thing. You're just enjoying the moment. But let God throw a trial on you. Who do you run to? You run to God. Now look, if I can figure that out, if my daughter could figure that out, who actually answered before I did, if you all could figure that out, then God can figure that out. God knows that being the sort of sinful, corrupt people that we are, the fleshly kind of egocentric people that we are, he knows that if he gives us endless comfort, we're going to end up thinking we deserve it, or we did it, or we manufactured it. I'm very comfortable, and my life's going good because I'm a self-made man. Best life now. Best life now. That's the way that people naturally think. So God has to drive that out of you. God has to make you dependent because you are naturally independent. You are naturally go my own way, do my own thing. I know what I'm doing. Self-made man, I'm in charge of my destiny. If God is involved at all, he's my co-pilot. But I'm definitely piloting this ship. That's the way human beings naturally think. God has to drive that out of you and make you dependent on him. And the methodology that he uses is to drive you to your knees. And once he's driven you to your knees, you'll cry out to him. You will pray to him. You will look to him. And he knows that. And so he will prove your faith. Do you understand the word prove here? Uh, have you seen the coins? I'm going to go with coins instead of alcohol. Alcohol has various proofs as well. But you get the silver coins where they say that they're silver proofs. Well, what they mean is that the silver the coin is made out of doesn't have much dross in it. That it's been purified. It's pure silver. Well, that's what... Peter is saying here when he's saying that the trials, the difficulties, prove your faith by getting the dross and the junk out of you so the end result is your pure faith toward Christ. God knows that. So Peter can write that the proof of your faith is more precious than gold which is perishable. What he means by that is, here on this planet, in this lifetime, we think gold is so very precious that we will fight and kill and die over gold. I need gold. I've got gold. There are people who feel financially secure because they've bought some gold. I've got gold. And I filled up my barns with plenty of food, so take rest, my soul. Eat, drink, be merry. 
gold in this planet is what we consider most precious, and yet Peter says there's something more precious, and that is your faith that has been tried by God, which is more precious than that gold that is perishing. What does he mean by that? Well, this is the same Peter who later is going to talk about the conflagration coming on the planet where the elements are burned up with a fervent heat. At that point, what's your gold worth? Nothing. Do you know the joke? I'm going to tell you the joke. You know the one guy on the planet who ever managed to take it with him? And before he died, he converted all his money into gold. And he managed to take it with him. And so he, he gets to heaven. He meets St. Peter at the gate. Just go with me here. And, uh, and he says, I've got my bag right here. Got my bag. And he's got it all filled with gold. He's very excited. I got my bag. And Peter takes a look, says, what's in the bag? And he opens it up and he looks in. And the people standing around say, what is it? And Peter says, pavement. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, because in heaven, streets of gold, what's, what's that? It's pavement, because the gold that perishes isn't the gold that's really valuable. The gold that's really valuable is the faith that's been tried in the fire, that has the dross burned off it, that is the pure faith toward God. That's precious. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result... In praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because you've been through these trials of your faith. Because you've been through this tutelage straight from God. Where he is teaching and instructing you how to have faith in him and the finished work of his son. When his son is revealed on the planet. You're actually going to honor and praise and worship Christ. Because that's God's design. That's God's plan. And in order to get you to that. He's going to take you through these trials so that it proves your faith. And why is it going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Because verse 8, because though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible And full of glory. The glory of God is going to be exercised in bringing his people to a faith where they are going to express honor and praise and glory when his son is revealed. And in preparing you for that moment, he is bringing you to love and faith and confidence in his son, the very one who you have not yet even seen. That's God's big plan. It ought to make you have the joy unexpressible. That God, who was under no obligation to you, did not pass you by, but decided to utilize you as part of his grand scheme to glorify his son. And you're in that. You're smack dab in the middle of God's eternal plan. Well, hallelujah. With lots of hall and lay and loo and ya. With with just lots of joy, inexpressible. There's a whole world out there. Walk outside these doors and walk any direction you want. And within minutes, you're going to find people who are not part of that plan. 
people who are just living their lives who have no idea what's going on, people who don't understand the Bible and don't know the Son of God, people who have heard the name just because, well, it's Christmas, people who do not understand what is going on in the divine mind and the divine plan of God and that God is electing, the word that Peter just used, that he has chosen some people to involve in this grand plan of of glorifying his son. And you're in it. Why? Why you? Why Steve? I know Steve. Why Steve? I know Steve and I ask the same question. Yeah. Why Steve? Does that make God better? Does that improve God in any way? Does it improve Christ in any way? Does it do anything for the Godhead where they think, well, now, finally, that we got Steve here, now, finally, something good has happened? Absolutely not. Which is why the Bible uses the word grace so often. It's all grace, 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 grace. It's all grace after grace, grace becoming grace. It's all grace followed by grace. It is only grace that explains Steve's love for Christ. And I know he loves Christ. It is only grace that explains why he has a permanent inheritance. It is only grace that explains why God would kill his son in the most ignominious way so that he wouldn't have to pour out his wrath on Steve. It's only grace. That's the only explanation for it. It is grace after grace after grace. It's only because of grace that God did not say to Steve, all right, I'm going to give you a couple shots at earning your own salvation. Here are my rules. Go. Because he knows Steve couldn't do it. It's only grace that results in our inexpressible joy. The reason that we, despite our circumstances, can still be joyous is because we understand the grace of God. We know the grace of God. And let me tell you one more thing. As long as I'm standing up here talking about grace, 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 grace. We haven't begun to begin to start to scratch the surface of God's grace. And yet we love to talk about the grace of God. Because he's taken us away from the legal requirements of the law. And he did send his son to die for us. But... But so far, the grace that we've experienced in this life and that we actually comprehend is just the grace that we've encountered here on this planet during our measly three score and ten. Some four score. Some four score and ten. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. You can pat her on the back. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have only experienced a modicum of God's grace so far. We'll never know the fullness of the blessing. Can anybody describe what New Jerusalem is going to be like? We just know it's coming. But then we don't know what's going to be after the New Jerusalem. Yeah. There's going to be a greater Jerusalem. Do we know what it's going to be like when the exceeding joy hits us? when the Lamb's Book of Life is opened and by golly, our name is in it. Oh, joy inexpressible. And when he hands us a stone with a new name, joy inexpressible. 
How do we begin to comprehend the grace of God that is going to allow us to eternally live in the light that no man approaches? Wow! Grace, grace, grace. Ah, I agree with that completely. We're going to get invited to sing along with angels. Come on. (laughs) And we're going to be gathered to the gathering of the church of the firstborn and the spirits of just men made perfect. That's the language of the Bible. That's just grace. How do we begin to comprehend that? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith. Okay, now it gets really good. You thought it was good up until now. Now it really gets good. Obtaining as a result of that faith, which God has been putting into you via his spirit, which he has been perfecting in you by burning off the dross and taking you through the trials that are testing your faith and perfecting it until it's like pure gold. The result of all of that is that you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, let's put it this way. Uh, I have kids, and I discipline my kids because I know that the outcome of my discipline is that they're going to be more obedient kids. I don't put them through what I put them through because I hate them. I put them through what I put them through because I love them, and I want them to be the best version of them that they can be. Okay, God's your heavenly father. And God knows that if he leaves you to yourself, you're going to engage in all kinds of fleshly desires. Your fleshly heart and your fleshly desires are going to overwhelm you. So he knows that he has to discipline you in order for you to trust more in him, to not be so independent, to be dependent on him, and to have greater faith in the very thing that he has already accomplished on your behalf. He knows that the way to do that is through the discipline and the trials that he is taking you through. And so, like a loving father, not a father who hates you, but a father who loves you, he takes you through these various trials for the purpose of perfecting your faith. And what's the outcome of that? The outcome of that faith is the salvation of your souls. So God, who has designed and determined and elected the salvation of particular people, uses the methodology, uses the means of creating faith in them, a faith that is going to be exchanged in heaven for righteousness because you have no personal righteousness of your own. And so he's going to give you a faith that you're going to exchange for righteousness. And because you need that faith, he's going to drill that faith into you through the things that you go through in this lifetime so that he can then ultimately save your soul and he's going to get all the glory and all the honor for it. That's exactly what God is up to. And it should make you joyous. 
It should make you thank him for the trials he's taken you through. Have you ever met anybody who has no trouble in life? I've met a couple of those people. I've met a couple of people who seem to have no trouble in life. And every one of them is an atheist. It's just a fact. Every one of them have no need of God, have no desire for a savior because their life has gone so darn good that they have never felt the need for an intercessor or a savior or a God. Why would they need a God? They're their own gods. They're pleased with themselves. They're satisfied with their lives. But if God is willing to interrupt your life, if God is willing to take you through trials that will drive you back to him, that's an act of grace. That is God being good to you. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Everything you're going through, no matter how difficult it is, is designed by God for the very purpose of bringing you to the point of the salvation of your soul. And when you know that, you can have joy in the midst of your trials. Whatever life brings you, you can still have joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to make a bunch of Pentecostals out of you yet. (laughs) Especially her. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, as to this salvation, as to the idea that God is going to save people through grace via a new covenant, this idea of people who do not have to follow the law in order to be saved, this is something that the prophets prophesied about. And even as they prophesied about it, they longed to look into it. They wanted to know, who are we talking about? We're talking about some Messiah to come. And when he comes, he's going to establish this new covenant that's predicted all the way back in Jeremiah and Isaiah. And this new covenant is going to result in the salvation, not only of Israel, but suddenly Gentiles are going to be brought in and adopted into the family. All of that is predicted by the prophets in the Old Testament. So Peter would say, as to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or what time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Several interesting things there. First off, Peter did not say that the prophets wanted to know what person or time the Spirit of God was talking about. Because in the Old Testament, we read that it's the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of Yahweh that brought about these prophecies. But Peter says that it's the Spirit of Christ within them, proving that Christ was the speaking agency for the Godhead. Christ is the Logos. Christ, then, is the Spirit of speaking that was in the prophets, according to Peter's own theology so he says they sought to know having prophesied they made careful search and inquiry because they sought to know what person or what time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as 
He predicted, now get this, this is really interesting. As he, that's Christ, as Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. So God was so sure, Christ was so sure of what was going to happen when Christ was on the planet that he was going to suffer and die as a substitute for people's sin, that he was going to bring about the new covenant that was predicted back in Jeremiah. They were so sure of the events that were going to occur that it was even Christ himself who spoke about the Christ to come and talked about the suffering that the Christ was going to go through so that he could talk about the glories of the Christ to come. That's a Christ who's in charge. That's the Christ of the Bible. That's the real Jesus Christ. Not this milk toast Jesus that you hear about all the time who's waiting for you to do something. Waiting for you to exercise your faith or to do enough good things or enough Hail Marys or genuflect enough times that then he's obligated to do something for you. That's not the Jesus I'm talking about. That's not the Jesus that Peter's talking about. The Christ of the Bible is a Christ who knew entirely what he was going to do, foreordained he was going to do it, came to the planet and accomplished it, which is why on the cross he could say, it is finished. Because he predicted what he was going to do, and he did it fully and completely. And that's remarkably sovereign. And so Peter could say, the prophets were seeking to know what person or what time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. Now you ought to think at that point, your brain ought to be thinking about the fact that after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Christ was walking on the Emmaus Road with a couple of his disciples, and he asked them, what are you talking about? And they say, what are you, a stranger around here that you don't know what's going on here? And they tell him about the fact that the one who they thought was the Christ had been killed in Jerusalem. And now certain women have uh, upset us because they've said that the Christ is raised. And it's now the third day and he's raised again from the dead. And, and Christ, we read, Christ showed them from the scripture, which would be the Old Testament, showed them everything in it pertaining to him. And showed how the Christ had to suffer and had to die and had to raise and come into his glory. This was all predicted because it was all determined from eternity past. And so I say again, after all that complicated language, you are right smack dab in the middle of the great and glorious plan of God, working out in time, on the planet, in humankind. And you ought to be really, really joyous over the fact that God included you in this grand and glorious plan because he was so sure of what he was going to do that he's called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And then he was so sure of what he was going to do that he told prophets to write down what he was going to do. And when he came to the planet, he did it. And then after he did it, he showed his disciples, look, it's me, I did it. That's a God who knows what he's doing. And if he knows what he's doing, he can handle you. If he's that powerful, that he's in that kind of control of human history, he can handle you. And he can handle your trials and your difficulties and your electric bill. Whatever it is that you're facing, he can get you through it. Because he's in that kind of charge of human history. It was revealed to them that they 
were not serving themselves, but they were serving you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, we also read that there's an angelic interest in all this because we read Paul talking about uh, elect angels and about the fact that God did not send his son to redeem fallen angels. Fallen angels that became demons continue under the wrath of God. And yet fallen men were treated like that. And we deserve it just as much. But fallen men had a redeemer. And Jesus Christ, our redeemer, guaranteed us our eternity. And Jesus Christ, our redeemer, determined since before the foundation of the world that he was going to save some people and wrote their names down in the Lamb's book of life. And then all of human history happened. And at the culmination of human history and the revelation of Christ, we are going to celebrate, we are going to worship, we are going to praise and glorify the one whom God sent to earth who is our Savior, who though we've never seen him, we love him. Though we've never seen him, we have faith, we trust in him. And the reason is because God by his spirit has taken us through the circumstances of life that would lead us to love him and trust him. This is all God's plan. God knows what he's doing from beginning to end. And if he included you in that big plan, you can't be joyous enough about it. What a bunch of weasels! How do you sit there? <laughs> you can't be more joyous. We're demonstrating the fact that the joy is indeed inexpressible. <laughs> you know, I go into some churches where sometimes I kind of think, okay, settle down. The preacher's trying to preach. Settle down a little bit. Because there's just this outburst of joy and amening and talking back and everything and I think okay settle down just a little bit okay you guys are on the opposite end of that spectrum you, you need to be a little more joyous every once in a while little amen and won't hurt you once when I came back from conference I think it was Carol who sat over there and after I made a good point she'd go preach so <laughs> every once in a while a little bit of joy would be good for you so now, speaking of joy, I hope you all do enjoy the meal we have prepared for you. I say we like I have anything to do with it. Uh, we'll be writing the check. That's what we'll be doing. And uh, speaking of joy, remember what Steve said this morning, what he read about the love of God and the prayer that he prayed. I'm very, very grateful, me personally, for this church for the same reasons that Steve expressed because I see in all of you the joy and the camaraderie and the fellowship. He just mentioned the brethren. I wanted to add the sisterin. You're, you're welcome. I'm just very, very grateful for all of you and the way that you express that joy because if it's true, if everything that Peter wrote, everything we talked about this morning is true, then that joy ought to flow out into the way that we deal with each other. And the way that we forgive each other and the way that we love each other and the way that we uh, react to each other 
both when we're wronged and when we're blessed. Keep remembering the joy and keep remembering the goodness and the grace of God and let that exude out into every area of your life. Wait, come here, come here, come here. They can't hear you. You started this. Come here. I didn't make you get up. Okay, Joni is going to come right up here to this microphone so that you can all hear her. Twice this week I ran into this verse in Psalm 96. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. And I thought of this church when we are gathered here together. That was worth it, wasn't it? (laughs) I got a minute. Anybody else got anything? A favorite verse, something you'd like to share? Get up here, Devante. Get up here. I had a question. Okay. No, he's talking about the inheritance laid up in heaven for us. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. Mm-hmm. Or when Paul talks about the fact that we are joint heirs with Christ. Yeah, like what, what exactly? Like well, physical, material, or is it just, you know? Physical in as much as, yeah, New Jerusalem's pretty physical. It comes down out of heaven and it's on the planet. You get to be in New Jerusalem. Pretty cool. So there's a physicality to it. But I think the ultimate inheritance is the fact that you get to be in the presence of God and that you get to stand before God as fully accepted and beloved without spot or blemish, despite the way you've lived your life. I think that's the inheritance that doesn't fade away. New body is also possible. Yeah, and the new body. You're going to get a new body. I can't wait for the new body. I guess that makes sense because I guess you, you usually get the inheritance after someone dies. Yep. Cool. He went with cool <laughs> here at GCA. <laughs> when you read something from the Bible that is inexpressibly wonderful, you don't say amen. You say cool. All yeah. right. All right. All right. All right. Anything else? Yes, yes, sir. I know people for whom the Bible is just gibberish. Yeah. It's un, unconnected, inconsistent, bunch of fables. Yeah. And that's not me. Yeah. Thank God that's not you. Because it could just as easily have been you. And yet it wasn't. That's grace. Yeah. All right. All right. We will be the bride of Christ. Christ never dies. The bride of Christ will never die. We will rule and reign for him forever. Sounds like a good life, doesn't it? Forever and yeah. ever. Eternity is right. an unending life. We really can't begin to think of it. We can't begin to think of it. Good stuff. I'm sorry, was I ignoring the Australian woman? Yes. No, you weren't. You're ignoring this little one. She wanted to say something. What would you like to say? I'm excited for Christmas. <laughs> All right, then. Well, good job. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.